Hi. Uh, before you listen to today's episode, we want to dedicate some time to the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, you folks have given us a voice, so we intend to use it as best as we can. Every week in June, we are going to highlight a different organization dedicated to and run by Black trans and non-binary people. This week is dedicated to the Emergency Release Fund, a mutual aid fund that helps LGBTQ and medically vulnerable individuals in New York City jails and ICE detention. Donations to the Emergency Release Fund go towards bail as well as advocacy efforts, and you can learn more at emergencyreleasefund.com. Additionally, we are committed to using our platform to amplify Black voices, both in booking more Black guests and covering Black directors on the show, the first of which will be announced at the end of this miniseries. We know actions speak louder than words. So once again, we encourage you to donate if you're in a position to do so. Links for the Emergency Release Fund are available in the episode description and on our social accounts at Blank Check Pod. Thanks again. Uh, enjoy this very, very silly episode and stay safe. Blank Check with Griffin and David. Blank Check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. What about the podcast? Maybe you'll get to like the podcast. It grows on you. <laughs> the first part of that was okay. I got okay. It got worse. You, you lost it when it grows on you. I'm you, realizing you went full Muppet there. That, then a, you were like Cookie Monster. Between yeah. Julie Kavner and Cookie Monster. <laughs> and, and that line is, is what she has ridden to success. If, if anyone could do Julie Kavner, Julie Kavner would not have had the career she's had. Yep, 100%. Um, hello everybody. My name is Griffin Newman. I'm David Sims. This is a blank check with Griffin and David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. Now you're realizing doing... it, aren't you? I am. Yeah, okay. Okay, good. That we I, don't know what this miniseries is called. No, we do. We do, because oh, okay. you forget we've recorded one episode. Oh, yeah. We're doing this very out of order because of the state of the world. Mm. We had recorded one episode before everything I forgot collapsed. about that. I forgot about that. Yes, the so one random say, pre-COVID episode. I could say definitively that we're doing a miniseries on the films of Nora Ephron, and it is called You've Got Podcast. Right, right, right. It had to be. It had to be. It had to be that... I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, but this is, yes, Amazers on the Films of Nora Ephron. And it's kind of a weird case because usually we start with the director's first film. But in this case, we have started with When Harry Met Sally, mm -hmm. a film she wrote and not directed because it felt too important to the canon. It felt like we had to start there. But and this it's, is, it's the ur-text. Totally. Everything comes from there, yes. Totally. But this is uh, her actual first film as a director and one of those yep. cases of, someone making such a big impact as a screenwriter that everyone was like, I guess you have to direct now. We have to see what you would do. Um, so yes, this is You've Got Podcast, and today we're talking about This Is My Life. Now, a thing we love on the show is when guests talk before they're introduced. Hint, hint, winky, winky. 
No, no I'm not okay. doing it. I was raised in a home. Not and far. now she's she spoke. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was raised in a home with both parents, so I don't oh, talk boy. until I'm introduced. Take it away. Any either comedians or actually no comedian was parents. my father did do stand up comedy in the 1980s. Believe it or not. What? That's true. Like Dottie Ingalls. He's a little mini bald chub chub Dottie Ingalls. Wow. Yeah. And my mother, my mother was the funnier one. People don't know who's speaking because you didn't introduce me, but I like that. We'll get to that in about 30 minutes. <laughs> That's our vibe. That's our vibe. Question. Yeah. Did, was your dad's act like any of the other comedians in this movie? Was he like a props guy? Um, my dad was, uh, we're Jewish people. So he mm. used to do uh, Jackie Mason impressions. On stage oh, wow. At like old, it was very Eugene Levy and waiting for Guffman. Like, um, sure. He would do parody songs. Uh, he had one. I mean, I'm not making this shit up. Like, there's a reason why I'm a controversial figure on the comedy scene. Okay. <laughs> because of my background, he had like, instead of Shake It Up Baby, he had Shake It Up AB. Wow. And uh, instead of the Wanderer, he had the Hondler. It went. So he was doing song parodies and impressions of a different stand-up. That's correct. Who, by okay, the way, is, by the way, dated mad. my mother, Jackie Mason. What? That's a fact. Oh my god! I'm saying all people don't realize I'm connected, baby. I have hookups in this industry. <laughs> okay, wait. I cut you off. You were about to tell us how your father's wanderer parody went. I was. It just went, well, I'm the type of guy who goes from store to store. There's a reason he didn't make it big. And that reason is he wasn't that good. (laughs) My dad, he's still with us. Making those little choices comedically. (laughs) I don't know. He goes from store to store. Oh, my God. Um, Song, yeah. You and as I said, I'll introduce in about 30 or 40 minutes. But uh, you are a friend. Mm -hmm. And when we... We're trying to figure out who to ask to be a guest on this miniseries, looking at the list of movies. This was a movie that I feel like has almost no cultural reputation. I was like, I don't know if anyone's seen this, so let's try to find a guest who might have some sort of thematic connection to it. And I was like, oh, we should have a stand-up on. Threw it out to you, and then you told me that, in fact, not only had you seen it, but this was one of your favorite movies when you were 11. And now we find out on top of that, you were also the child... Oh, right. stand up. That makes sense. This is like, a, it like it's a hat trick. <laughs> yeah, no one knows that. First of all, I love this movie. And I do remember it was this movie in a movie called Gloria with, I think, Gina Davis. Like, I loved movies okay. about struggling single moms when I was little. I don't know why, but um, yeah, I loved it. Wait, I'm trying to find this Gloria movie. Because there's there's Gloria with Sharon Stone and Gloria with uh, Jenna Rowland. Sure. I'm sorry. The movie I'm, is called Angie. I yes, apologize. Okay. Yes. Oh, Angie, yes. Angie. I know. With, um, I, I could picture yeah, the video Gandolfini. box in my head. What'd you say? Gandolfini's in that one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And she's got yeah. like red curly hair. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. It was a good movie, but I mean, imagine like a little kid being like, I love when like 40 year old ladies struggle with their children. Like I was a little <laughs> right. adult. You like you know, these I movies about like outer borough ladies who are like, <laughs> look, I'm just trying to find some time in between dropping the kids off and making dinner. Yes. I loved it. I love the struggle. I'm trying know? my hardest over here. <laughs> <laughs> You're really good. I'm working on it. By the end of this episode, I'm going to be pitch perfect. Yeah. 
Um, no, I just we we were like, let's just ask, and then it turns out you have all uh, these roots with the movie. And I was joking earlier when I said thirty or forty minutes. Our guest today is Michelle Collins, the great Michelle Collins, thank you, uh, comedian extraordinaire, and also host of the Michelle Collins Show. That's right on Sirius XM. Now, before we get into this movie proper, I want to ask you, yeah, because uh, you host a daily radio show mm-hmm. that has now gone to uh, at home remote records. That's correct. Uh, many of us podcasters are struggling with figuring out how to uh, adjust to these weird times. And you are doing about five times as much as everyone else. Thank you for saying that. It's all true. What, yeah. have, you, have you learned, like, is there anything you figured out, like things that help make an at-home record good, things to avoid, anything like that? Well, my listeners are familiar with um, my neighbor who's across like the air shaft for me for weeks had this little cage hung out of her window. I assume it's a woman who put it out, sexist statement, and it had a sandwich inside for the birds. And so for weeks, every day when I would do my show, I would just watch these birds peck away. I don't think it was a sandwich. It was some kind of seed block or something, but I like to picture it as a sandwich and I would watch it every day and it would like weirdly soothe me. And then when that huge storm came through last week, she took it down. And I'm not joking that since that bird sandwich has been removed, I have actually felt myself getting more and more stressed doing the show. I'm not joking. Like since I can't, it's, I'm like, uh, yep. Nell, you're, you know, I need something. I, I don't yeah. know what it is. You're Tony Soprano with the ducks to bring up Gandolfini twice. Please never stop. <laughs> um, so it's been hard. And actually it's funny. Cause I'm sure you guys feel this too. Like there's no audience. Like you have no one to be funny with. I don't even zoom with them. So it's like just via the headset and it's hard. Yeah. 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 And it is. It's like I I think people don't realize how much body language still comes into play in an audio format if you're talking to other people and just the difference of, oh, there might be a half second uh, delay or even just you're only getting a medium close up of someone. It changes it all. I'm going to admit now that the reason I asked you that question was because Uh I realized I had forgotten to do the thing that I have come up with as a hack to better remote records. Which is what? I have realized that I think I do a better job when I'm wearing shoes. Wow. What? It makes it feel a little more like formal, a little more like profesh. So sure. I, I was putting my shoes on while you were giving your answer about the birdcage. Um, I know this is an all male podcast in me. Uh, pointedly, is, a pointedly all male podcast. And I'm a broad shouldered girl, so it's still cusping. <laughs> but let me add um, that I have to wear a bra during my show. Like I, I can't, really? I have not done the show without a bra on. Same here. So I can't. Yeah. And boys, I don't want to nauseate you all at once, but I am like the milking ladies in Mad Max. I need a bra. Um, I, <laughs> I have some problems, you know, and without it, I feel so unkempt. Like it just makes me feel too loose. I don't know. I don't like I it. know. I think we got it. And I like similarly, it's like there's a difference between if I'm wearing pajama pants versus real pants. And I had like started this process being like, well, here's the silver lining. You can be comfy during your records. But I'm now realizing I might be like two steps away from wearing tops and tails during remote podcasting. (laughs) Are you wearing jeans right now, Griffin? No, I'm wearing like my fake pants. I'm I'm really into yeah. I'm really into pants that look like jeans, but are actually kind of secretly sweatpants. But they feel a little more pant like. Sure, they're called jeggings. Uh, Jeggings. I'm I'm pretty much wearing jeggings. Yes, (laughs) Uh, hip hugging jeggings. Um. So okay, this this movie. You say to me, when I throw this out to you, 
I loved this when I was 11. I forgot about this movie until you just mentioned it, but that was weirdly a movie I watched a lot. I have no idea if it's like still good. And yeah. there's almost nothing you can find about this movie. It barely came out. I found like 10 reviews in total on the yeah. internet from when it came out. The Wikipedia page is unfinished. Like whoever they're... made the Wikipedia page didn't bother to add the cast. The thing every wow. single movie and TV show has on Wikipedia. Yeah. So I was expecting for this to be a classic, like what we like to call movie that doesn't exist. Mm. And then Dave and I both watched this and we're like, this thing fucking rules. It's pretty great. I loved I cried. I loved sure. it. And sure. I wonder, it's hard obviously to know, but if I had the emotional depth at 11 to understand the pain, I don't want to spoil the plot yet, but later yeah. on, yeah. You know, the pain of what these daughters and their mother is going through and the mistrust and the abandonment and all that stuff. Did I feel that as a kid? Like somehow? And is that why I w was gravitating towards it? It's an interesting thing, but... It broke my heart watching it as an adult. I think that is so much of it, too. Like, you you joking that it's weird that you were into all these, like, uh, single women doing it on their own movies yeah. as a young well, girl. But this movie is so much a, a daughter movie, too. Yeah. Um, which is It's also so the Efron thing is she likes to translate these tough things into, like, fairly light, easy comedy. Like, and I was obsessed with sleepless in seattle when i was a kid and there is nothing for a kid to relate no. to in that movie that movie is about being like afraid of getting married and uh you know like are you gonna is everything gonna work out for you in your 30s or like i don't know what i liked about that as a kid except that i loved it i watched it over and over and over again well it's, it's about also death it's about being a widower if I can uh, uh use uh my my most overused uh phrase here on the podcast this movie is such a Rosetta Stone because I feel like Nora Ephron's most famous quote is everything is copy, which she would say all the time. Like you can make something out of anything. And her mm -hmm. career really started writing all these very kind of personal uh, essays and pieces that then led to writing Heartburn, which then led to that being made into a film, which then led to her becoming a screenwriter and then ultimately a director. And then this is her adapting someone else's book, but... Mm -hmm. Her and her sister, Delia Efron, who was one of the first writers ever on SNL, uh, were both the daughters of a screenwriter mother who is mm. the one who told them everything is copy. Like mm. they grew up in a household with a mother who was like, you take every embarrassing thing that happens to you and you make it into something mm. like you got to milk all of that for material. Phoebe Efron is, her name. is the mother. Yeah. yeah. So this, you can just see, like, even though she's adapting someone else's book, there is such a clear reason why she reads this thing and goes like, oh, I see the movie that could be made out of this. 100%. Well, I actually had to look it up because I really thought that Nora, it was Nora Ephron's story. Totally. Like, watching right. it, I was like, oh, this must be based on her childhood because it's so raw and, like, personal, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the other reasons why, uh, David, I don't know if I can speak for you, but for me, why I love Sleepless in Seattle and why I love this movie is I loved Gabby Hoffman who as a fellow oh. child prodigy, I felt very connected <laughs> to, you know, this little actress who is so, she was so ahead of her time. You know what I mean? She like was. Her energy, she was great. So I think- And also she's so different in this and, and Sleepless in Seattle is just the next year. And it's a totally like, she's such a cool, weird kid in that one. And in this one, she's such a little sweetie pie. No, she's I, like a genius. 
Yeah. He's a little genius. Yeah. But this is also one of the only movies where she seems like a kid and not an adult in a kid's body. Like she in was Uncle like, Buck, she's also kind of weird right, grown up kid. Right. Because yeah. like a lot of child stars, the success is like, look at this kid. They act like an adult. Right. They have what this presence? weird precociousness. That's that's the Tremblay thing. He goes right. up to the, uh, you know, he wins a Critics' Choice Award and he gets up and he's like, I'd like to thank the broadcast film critics. Right. And everyone's <laughs> like, what the fuck is this kid? This is very much what I look like right now on this. I look like Jacob Tremblay. I was like, what am I looking like right now? I have no makeup on. You look like America's hottest movie star. Is that what you're talking about? That's a high watermark. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Wow, what assholes you are. You're like, you don't look as good as Jacob Tremblay. (laughs) I'm just saying, look, I mean, chill, Michelle, okay? You thought you were shitting on yourself, but that's like a pretty heavy back pat to say you're looking like Tremblay. Room. When I saw Room, I was like, what are we talking? VO5 hot oil treatments? Like, what is in the bunker that is making his hair so silken? That's what I kept screaming throughout Room. Yeah, you, um, you, you locked yourself in a room for, for five years just to try and get that, yeah. Yeah, whatever that kid's doing, it's working. Did you know that Jacob Tremblay loves the Star Wars movies so much that his dog is named Ray after Ray from Star Wars? I thought it was Ray Charles. That's so funny. <laughs> I was sure he named his dog after Ray Charles. Yeah, because he's such a Taylor Hackford fan. <laughs> Specifically. Uh, you Google the Tremblay's parents? What? Uh, Have you seen them? I don't think so. Have you never Googled Jacob Tremblay's parents? Nope. Doing it now. Uh, Benefits okay, you might want to turn the video report. off when you start to jerk off about how hot they are. Okay? Because <laughs> they are so hot. You are. I'm going to turn my video camera off because I well, have to Jesus fucking Oh, my God. You've never seen the Tremblay's. Holy shit. That was Mr. Tremblay calling me. That was the FBI yeah. calling as we all. Yeah. <laughs> Can you Simultaneously. This wow, is insane. This. Both the Tremblay parents look like catalog models. You know, they're Wait, the his, most beautiful people I've ever seen in my life. Go on. His dad is a cop. His dad's a Canadian detective. Holy, I, I that guess, guy's a fucking detective. I have to change my pajama pants, my jeggings. I'll be right back. <laughs> Holy oh, shit. Oh my God. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that mom. What does she do? She's a, a homemaker. I mean, I would watch a show called The Tremblays that's about, like, his hot dad solving hot crimes. Oh, yeah. my God. I would watch then, his father. I mean, truly, if he had an OnlyFans account, I would be uh, <laughs> home poor, house poor. What do they say? He is so... Um, and that's why when I look at Jacob, I'm like, uh, what happened? And he's like, <laughs> but I'm like, wait, these are your, he's like cute, but he ain't hot. How old is yeah, he now? Like 11? Look up his age. He's, I believe he's 13. He'll, he'll glow up though. You know, he's, he'll he's, glow up. You never know. He'll either do the reverse Muniz or the Muniz. <laughs> for, for the reverse the Muniz is when you're a really cute kid and then you grow up on cute. Yeah. And then the Muniz is where you are a cute kid and you grow up to be Frank and Muniz. Right. <laughs> For the listener at home uh, who hasn't Googled Tremblay's parents yet, yeah. uh, let me just say, you know, when you watch like an NBC cop show and you're like, that's not what a detective looks like. <laughs> right, right, right. They don't go to the hairdresser every two weeks. A guy who's that like young and full of life would never rise to the ranks of a detective. Uh, Daddy Tremblay is proving that hella wrong. I actually forgot how hot they were. I just Googled them. It is. <laughs> It's upsetting. It's absurd. It's actually infuriating. Yeah, yeah. Jacob will be cute when he grows up. He has to be. He looks like a beautiful Orthodox Jewish woman as a child, you know? Because <laughs> yes. he has that sort of silken hair. Yes. Yeah. 
I'm like, yeah. where you're like, that's a of unorthodox. What's her name? Yeah. Like Ezra Schifrin. I don't know her name. I would um, love to see Tremblay do a reverse Linda Hunt in Year of Living Dangerously. I would love to have them be like, you want look, him to play we, a tried, lady? we tried to find a 47 year old actress to play an Orthodox Jew. And ultimately, Tremblay had the best read. Right. We're just going to suspension of disbelief. The guy <laughs> sells it. Tremblay can oh do anything. God. He can He's do anything. Genius. Come on. He's a pro. Um, I, I think we've talked about this before uh, on the podcast, maybe. Michelle, have you seen the movie Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining? I've never heard of it. Came out last year. Big flop. Uh, oh secret masterpiece. Secret masterpiece. Worth Good watching. Movie. Good movie. But Jacob long. Tremblay, long, very long. Oh, Jacob he's Tremblay, he's, he has a two-scene cameo. Is he even oh. credited in it? So- uh, I think he might be. But it's, it's a, yeah, it's a small role. He plays, spoiler, a victim. He's the, right, of he's the, the Drew Barrymore in, in Scream. Yes, like, he's like the oversized, overfamous movie star to be killed off quickly. I got yeah. you. Um, Is he the most famous person in the movie? It's him and Ewan McGregor. McGregor. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Ewan McGregor, isn't it? Ewan McGregor plays the kid from The Shining grown up. Hold on a second. You don't have to sell me anymore on it. Ewan, for me, is my top number one of all oh, time. You will love this movie. Oh, I have to watch it. Okay. Here's the pitch of Dr. Sleep. Hey, imagine if you were the kid from The Shining. 30 years later, you'd probably be a full-on alcoholic, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that might sit with you, that, you know, that whole experience, a little it is bit. Only, it's like 40% horror movie, 60% pretty realistic recovery drama. <laughs> right. Is it right. because, is he a doctor who sleeps a lot, or is does he go to a doctor who helps him sleep? He um, is an orderly in an this? old person's home, and he gets the nickname Dr. Sleep because he helps people sleep by oh, like sitting it. with them. <gasps> hmm. I it's like Dr. Sleep is actually like a nice heartwarming plot point right. in the they movie. Call it, yes, it's not a creepy thing. I thought it was a, like a nickname for booze. Oh, yeah, he's I mean, like, oh, yeah. I gotta go visit Dr. Sleep. <laughs> yeah. No, it's this thing where, like... I got because, an appointment. Is there anything funnier than this being booze? The weird sort doing, of, like, the classic, like, hand symbol. You're doing banana phone with your fingers. Yeah, he's exactly. throwing up the shaka. Yeah. No, this is the shocker, isn't it? No, but isn't this a shaka? What is this called? Oh, yeah, I can't remember. I don't know. I don't know. We should definitely revisit it. <laughs> Dr. Sleep is really good, but I just want to say, Tremblay has this cameo, which is essentially just to be brutally murdered. Spoilers. Yeah, he's like disemboweled. Um, and it's like Ugh. horrifying and like super graphic. Oh, no. And he's giving this incredibly good, terrified performance, like screaming and crying and begging them to stop murdering him. A bunch of adults. And the story on the set is they like film that scene and the actors who were like attacking him were having a hard time staying in it because his reactions were so realistic that they were worried <laughs> that they were actually traumatizing him. And the director calls cut and Tremblay just pops up and smiles and like runs off to the craft services table. Oh, and it's like hot dad is there and, like in the back, like in a hoodie watching. That's so cute. Yeah. And he like winked at them and was like, pretty good, huh? Wow. <laughs> what a little stinker. The dude can apparently just fucking turn it on and turn it off. Okay, when the scene was finished, Tremblay popped up, covered in blood, gave his hot dad a high five. I added in the word hot. And then went off in search of a snack while the rest hey. of us were shell-shocked and traumatized. 
The high five was the detail I forgot. That he popped up, high five, hot dad. Yeah. Uh, what a fucking legend. Our finest movie, Star Trek. I, uh, I just love him. And of course, I, I also appreciate that hot people can still have smart kids. Because yes. my read on it is that only um, average to ugly people can have genius children. So I'm happy. Ooh. That just makes me feel good. But I feel like often when you see like an impossibly beautiful person and you're like, oh, my God, their parents must have been so hot. You look it up and you're like, oh, no, it's a weird combination. Yeah. Their features don't work separately, but you mix and match. Tremblay is like bucking all trends. He's smart. He's talented. Oh. He's humble. Silky hair. Oh. No, I always feel like when people, you know, every country has um, a type of animal they look like. Like, I feel like, um, you know, the British are very bird-faced. Germans are quite piggy mm. or frog-faced. The French are very froggy, obviously. Uh, Americans, I would say, can lean towards piggy. Uh, I think we lean piggy a little bit, but okay. I think when you combine beautiful animals, sure. that, I, I hope that I'm making sense. The point yeah. is, is that I agree with you that two hot people normally do not make hot children. Something goes I wrong. I think you need an ugly parent to mix up the genetics. Yes. So that the final product is like otherworldly. Right. I think, I think two hot parents often is like putting the wrong sides of the magnets together. Yeah. I know this um, isn't the point of the podcast, but can I just, while we're talking about celebrity children. I mean, this has pretty much become a Tremblay podcast. The point of the podcast yeah. is out the window. <laughs> yeah, it's a blank Jake. Yeah. Go ahead. Say whatever you want, Michelle. <laughs> you see the paparazzi photos of Andy McDowell and Margaret Qualley crawling under the gates of Runyon Canyon? <laughs> yes. That, I'm sorry, it bears repeating. Has to be one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life that these two idiots went to Runyon <laughs> when the gate is closed, but that better yet, the paparazzi knew to park themselves to fuck someone over. Yeah. And they ended up fucking over Andy McDowell and the star of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Come on. Right. They knew s- someone's going to do it. Someone's going to dare. I, I, I went. I sent it to the chat. I'm I, went, it. I went on a rare uh, daylight grocery store run recently because I've been trying to do my grocery shopping at really off hours in order to uh, respect social distancing. But I did a daylight run. And I saw a guy out on the street who had like two different long zoom lens cameras around his neck. And I was like, this has to be a covid paparazzi. Right. I mean, he had he had the energy of a paparazzi. Right. He wanted to be like celebs buy dried beans, too, or whatever. He's looking for something like that. I think they're mask shaming people. I think that they're out too. They're think, out to catch people breaking the social distancing. That's what they want to catch. Yeah. 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 Right. Where were you? Were you people, like in Tribeca? Uh, I was not. I'm not going to say where I was. Fair enough. I but it was, not, it was not a hip neighborhood. Like it was also, I was like, this is a weird place. He was in fact stationed outside of, and maybe he was just changing SD cards or whatever, but he yeah. was stationed outside of a closed movie theater. And I was like, dude, I think I'm the only person who's going to be walking back and forth this spot over and over again crying and i am not famous enough to be worth your time if i saw you weeping in the daily mail i would slowly close my laptop and take the longest nap i would just be like little grip so sweet i I was outside an amc location like it was like the spot where like uh uh you know uh, river phoenix fans outside the viper club like it was like by the way, way to tie it back into the Thank film. Thank you. Thank you. Come on. I know about that. Are you going to mm-hmm. tell everybody else? Yes. So this movie we're talking about today, This Is Our Life, based on a Meg Woolitzer novel. 
This is uh, my life. This is my life. Because they the keep saying, no, my. this is my life. Dueling this, narrators. I read it like the Shirley Bassey way. This is my life. You know that song? And well, I sure. don't give a damn about emotion. You know that song? First of all, 10 I, singing I do. points. Shirley Bassey, Welsh legend. Uh, One love. You know, uh, we, I love her too. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I, sure. It's sort of a, you know, like, when it's the daughter, it's kind of like, well, this is my life. And when it's right. the mom, it's like, no, this was my life. This and like, I life. did it just how I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I love this life, homie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> She's back to Cookie Monster. <laughs> but the three leads of this movie. We want life. That's the other name that they were for it. Just the Cookie Monster. Life. 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 for life is good enough for me. <laughs> Uh, the three leads of this movie are uh, Julie Kavner, a.k.a. Marge Simpson. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, Gabby just Hoffman. impossible for our generation to watch a Julie Kavner performance without constantly thinking about Marge Simpson. And Not we're going to get back to this and talk yeah. about it in a second. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Gabby Hoffman, who we discussed, and then yeah. uh, Samantha Mathis, yep. uh, who is uh, River Phoenix's girlfriend, uh, tragically, mm-hmm. on the night at the Viper Club. Um she but, also dated Christian Bale. She was like a, a yeah, yeah. Go on. Well, go on. Th- this is her second movie ever. The year before yes. this is Pump wow. Up the Volume with Christian Bale. <gasps> Another favorite of mine when I was little. No, absolutely. Great movie. I think she may have made this before Pump Up the Volume, or maybe not. This movie was made a long, right? It was made like in 1990, right? Like, was, was it, it a long time? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I can. I don't know. I it. feel like Pump Up the Volume is credited as her debut, but it might just That's, be released. That is day. definitely her big debut. Yeah. She almost immediately reteams with Christian Slater for Fern Gully, where I always forget that they are the hot elves in that movie. Yes, yes they are. The hot tree fairies or whatever Krista they are. Krista and Pips. Um, controversially, I have never seen Fern Gully. Uh, it's absolute trash, and it's 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 like Hook, and it's one of those movies our generation is yeah. like, that was great. I saw it when I was six. What are you talking about? And I'm like, go, go watch Fern Gully. It it's, looks like they it, drew it over a weekend. No, it's horrible. It's a nightmare. Uh, it was the first animated movie that Robin Williams signed on to, and when they oh. offered him Aladdin, he was like, you can't advertise me being an Aladdin because... I'm really all in on Fern Gully and I want them to have sort of like the exclusive shine. And then you watch Fern Gully and you're like, this is a dry run for Aladdin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like he has not figured out how he to plays be a, a funny bat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I agree that Fern Gully is a bad movie. It looks like trash. Uh, if you think Tremblay's parents are hot, uh, check out the animated uh, tree fairies that Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis <laughs> play are in they, Fern are, Gully. Are they hot? They are hot cartoon characters. I think the reason they our generation has like, nostalgia for that movie is because it was a sexual activator for a lot of. I young mean, kids. they all look like they're at some like rave. Like they yep. all, they're all dressed like you know in these sort of midriff bearing shredded clothes in Fern Gully. They look like okay. they're, you know, I don't know what what did the kids do Lollapalooza? What what was like a nineteen ninety two thing? Yeah, she, right. Let me say a couple things. I've never seen even the animation from this movie until just right now. Mm-hmm. She looks like a combination of Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny and uh, a little Debbie Mazar thrown yeah. in for that. Yep. He is a ginge, which you know is my type. Um, <laughs> oh, sure. And uh, the body on him uh, is insane. Yeah, like, the body don't has, stop. Yeah. The body don't <laughs> stop. But he kind of looks like Chris Kattan as Mango with the red Oh, wig. boy. Wow. Oh, yes. boy. I mean, now that you've said it, yes, right. And we all we all love the mango. 
Yeah. And we all have jerked off to mango. So yeah. you were right. Um, it is just crazy, though, that it's like she's playing 15, 16 in this movie. Well, I, I feel like she's playing from like 12 to 18 almost. Right. Like she's she seems to be like um, very young when the movie begins. Well, she's 22 in real life when they yeah, film this. I, know, I think I know. And but then the like following the... year, she's in fucking Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, man. She was playing Princess adult Daisy. John Leguizamo's royal love interest. Yeah, that was what I knew her from. Well, of course. I had no idea that she was 22 until just until you saying it now. And I was also very confused about her age throughout it because she behaves like a 13, 14 year old. Like right. she's mm-hmm. so childish, but also emo and funny. Um, I also noted that her fashion in it was so of today. Like yeah. It, yeah. everything she wore was like totally. Williamsburg, Nighthawk, evening yeah. out. Like you know, high waisted jeans. Yes. The, yeah. jeans. the cuff. It, right. Yeah. Head to but, toe and, look totally normal today, but then she like had sex with a dude. I was like, wait, huh? But yeah. I feel like it, this movie spans. It doesn't get into it too hard, but it, it spans several years. Like it starts with them in Queens. It ends with Julie Kavner as like a relatively famous comedian. Like it's not set over one year. Well, I don't know. I I viewed it as like how fast this shit can move, but you think nah. it's several years. Yeah, no, because she yeah she gets a boyfriend. They you know like yeah no there's 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 time passing here. I, I will say I was uh, relatively relieved when I did the Google search and found out she was 22 in this movie was filmed because oh, talking about her fashion, hard? the second she showed up, I was like, this is someone I have a crush on at the Metrograph. Like this is, I mean, in she, vibe, she was served by, like rip your ticket in half there. A hundred percent. Like all rude. Yeah. Right. Right. right she disaffectedly right. rings up my $5 <laughs> Boylan's ginger ale bottle. Yeah. I could see God. you two together, actually, Griffey. Absolutely. I think that's like a cute little coupling. I think it would work. Um, What's Mathis doing now? She is, I looked it up. Oh, she's she had been an doing, arc on Billions. She's still a recurring on Billions. She lives in New York. She moved to New York about 10 years ago because she mm. was tired with uh, Hollywood and she wanted to do theater. And she mostly does theater. And she was in a musical that was supposed to open the night that all the Broadway theaters closed. No, what was uh, it? That, that blows. Whisper House, it was called. Yeah. She's also like a VP in SAG. Yeah. I saw so, that. Yeah, but that yeah. doesn't mean anything. Because like, you know, Andrea Carteris ran SAG forever. I mean, I'm barely in the union. But let's not bring up my professional career. I'll say this about <laughs> her. Um, <laughs> that's a new podcast I'm starting called Barely in the Union. Where I just talk shit about SAG. And how I got like two screeners this year and it was the Joker and some other bullshit. And I was furious. But <laughs> other point, um, back to Mathis. Yeah, she's like, what, 50 something now? I think she's 49, 50. She's around. 49, 49 years old now, yes. 49. And I just am fascinated. There's a musical called Whisper House because nothing's going to not get me in a seat. Being like, <laughs> oh, you got to see the big fun <laughs> musical extravaganza. Whisper House. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, it does sound like some sort of British chocolate company. Like, yeah. <laughs> I just got a sampler from Whisper House. It sounds right. like a Japanese reality show. Like, have you seen Whisper House on Hulu? They literally do not speak over two decibels. It is. It's adorable. great. It's so calm. Nothing ever happens. They just sit there making food. <laughs> Calling a musical Whisper House essentially ensures that the show has no ballads in it. It's like, do you want to hear zero belting from people yeah, exactly. who can sing? Now, I just want to uh, uh, circle back around to the, the Kavner-Marge uh, connection. 
because it is weird. This movie comes out like three years after The Simpsons starts, and it's obviously become a cultural phenomenon. And at this point, like, she was a sitcom star. She won an Emmy. She She had been in a lot of films. She had been in a lot of TV shows. It's so weird now because she very rarely acts on camera, and it's kind of impossible to imagine seeing her on screen in a movie four years after The Simpsons came out and not being thoroughly distracted. Right. But in the early 90s, she was able to like coexist as like, oh yeah, Julie Kavner, who you know also, fun fact, is the voice of Marge on The Simpsons rather than the opposite, where it's like, fun fact, do you know that Marge used to be in movies and TV shows? Right, and there's like a person, a human person, that's when her mouth is open, she speaks with the voice of Marge Simpson, the cartoon yeah. character. It also shows you that it didn't take much for her to be Marge. I mean, no. she's a genius, no. but I'm saying that was a genetic lottery ticket, basically, of having like that one larynx cord snipped, and all yeah. of a sudden she's, you know, a billionaire. Absolutely. The performance that's actually good is Patty and Selma. That's where she's actually messing Ooh, with it. Because yes. that's yeah. the she plays all the Bouviers. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love The Simpsons, yeah. It's uh, also so. one of those things where like she only is the voice of Marge because she was on the Tracy Ullman show where those right. shorts originated. She was part of the ensemble cast for all those sketches. Right. As, as was Dan, was Castellaneta. Dan Castellaneta. And then there were two other regulars on the Tracy Ullman show who did not get to voice Simpsons. You're kidding. Who are they? Do we have their Sam names? McMurray and Joseph Who's Malone. A, yeah, both good actors, comedians. You wow. would recognize Sam McMurray, no Sam question. McMurray, you would know. He plays seen rich him guys a ton all the of stuff. He's yeah. like a classic character actor, but it's one of those things where you're like, there but for the grace of God go I. Like, just coin flip. Like, I don't know. Why don't you play five of these Simpsons characters? A question I have is, why didn't Tracy herself voice one of the characters? I think she views that as one of her big regrets. <laughs> fair. Yeah. By the way, she's on Mrs. America. I don't know if you guys are watching on Hulu. No, not yet. Not yet, but I'm going to. I'm not just saying this because I'm a woman who went to a Barnard, but it is Ooh, fantastic. Okay. It's, it's really, really good. She's she's phenomenal on it, but she really, like, I mean, she was Tracy Allman. Yeah. And then you just had The Simpsons, and that's, like, her legacy almost, which is kind of I know. I know. It's crazy. Um, I want to say one last Marge thing before we go on to the movie proper. Yeah, yeah. My Zoom background is like a, a spread of Marge with her hair down, sprawled it's, out in a it's, bed. It's hot Marge. Okay, now, you folks probably saw this and went, oh, great, Griffin Googled Simpsons porn. Of course, an, an infinite well on the internet. And he found a slightly tasteful example of Simpsons erotica. This, my friends, is in fact the actual official photo from Marge Simpson's Maxim cover spread. Oh my God, that's funny. There was an issue of Maxim in which Marge Simpson was the cover girl and they had like eight drawings that were signed off by Matt Groening. And I like had this in my memory and I was like, am I wrong about this? Let me double check. And in Googling to double check, I was reminded not only did that happen, there was also a Playboy issue. What? In which Marge's nipples were visible. Oh, no, no, thank you. I swear to fucking God. I want to see Marge with nipples in Playboy. I don't want like the fake porn Pony Island version. I want the official Marge nipple color. Yeah. This is officially licensed, a show that is now owned by Disney and is on Disney+. Plus. Wow. Okay, I'm looking here. 
Okay, they're, no, her they're, nipples. They're like human. Her nipples. Her nipples are a light pink. They're. Pink. I regret to Wait, inform you that, that Marge is yes. Yeah. Put it up on my dude in the background, please. She's wearing a see-through nighty. I'm gonna add it to the chat. She she has like a a plate of donuts, and yeah. she's on a bear rug, which is very strange. What are you saying? It's... There's so many words coming out of your mouth. <laughs> You're sending it to us? I'm waiting. Yeah, it's one of these things. But can you just, like, imagine, like, Disney buying The Simpsons and being like, oh, fuck, there's no way to, like, men in black memory flash this from the consciousness? Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, no one remembers this. Yeah, but it will also exist on the internet forever. Yes. Okay, it I sent it to the chat. Away. Here it comes. Yeah. Click open. Oh, boy, here we go. The here we article go. is oh called The God. Devil and Marge Simpson. Correct. The Devil yes. and Marge Simpson. So let me say something. Clearly what this picture is, is mm -hmm. they animated Marge mm -hmm. and then they did take a human, I think a photograph of ladies breasts. I would yes. imagine so. And then just like, cause the color doesn't even match. Like they're being, she's yellow. No, it looks like they traced over a photo yeah. of a playboy model and then just put Marge Simpson's head over her That head. is exactly what it looks like. I'll tell you but this. That... I, knew, I knew I was going to be fat shamed on this podcast. No. I didn't know it was going to be because of Naked March. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but I feel fat shamed. She's so slim. Well, she's always, she's always been very slender, but it, I will point this out. This is, she has the up hair, the yeah. classic Marge beehive, whereas yeah. in the show, like, Marge's hair being down is like when Marge is hot. Mm -hmm. That like in my Maxim uh, virtual background, that's hair right, down. Right. So the movie, this is my life starts in a way that immediately made me angry uh, with how good it was. Cause I recently, while struggling to do anything creative during quarantine was like, Oh, you know, it'd be a cool way to start a movie having a character tell the audience, this is not my story. Like, wouldn't that be an interesting way to frame a movie? And that's literally how this movie starts. Yeah. I had no idea beyond that, but I was like, I'm going to be able to unwrap that into something interesting. Um, this movie has these dueling narrators. It's narrated by Samantha Mathis and Kavner switching off more Mathis. Yeah. yeah. Occasionally, Kavner comes in to interject. I wish there was more of that, though. It kind of drops that after a while. Kavner disappears for a good chunk of the movie and it really yeah. becomes almost exclusively from the About daughter's the perspective. Yeah, but yeah. that don't you think that's on purpose? Because totally. she disappeared from their lives. Yes. Boys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I it's think it's pretty smart. Um, but yes, the movie starts with like, this isn't my story, but I'm gonna tell it anyway. I guess it is actually kind of my story. And then you see the title, This is my life. And then Julie Kavner like resets the narration and says, like, right. this is my life. And they show the opening title card again, and then my is crossed out, and my is written in. Yeah, and already I, like. I was like, does this honk? Yeah, I was, that, that, was, that was when it got me. Is this honking right out the gates? Well, I'll tell you when they're honking. It's when they're driving to Manhattan. As Carly uh, Simon sings. First of all, everything that you wanted in this movie happens. Carrie Fisher shows up and Carly Simon sings. Like yes. the two things that Carrie want... Fisher shows up wearing a great silk scarf. Oh, first of all, she probably has never looked better than she no. looks in this movie. I she mean, she's great. so cheap. She's constantly smoking, which made me wish I smoked again. I was like, oh, it's like so something so sexy, like just lighting up in the middle of a room surrounded by children. I love that. Oversized fake <laughs> teeth. Big the cap teeth. Mm -hmm. But um, we forgot to mention that in the opening scenes, uh, George Costanza's mother. Was Estelle, also yeah. Uh, yes. What's her name? 
Stel Harris. Stel Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Potato Head herself. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and also, also in the opening scenes, because the movie, like, it gets going pretty quickly. It ramps up, but it's uh, Julie Kavner, single mother, uh, husband just ran off, was never heard from again, has never been tracked down. She's living with her aunt and her two young daughters. She works uh, at a makeup tester at a department store. With Joy Bihar. I was going to say. I like, you said her name wrong, and that does make me laugh. Sorry. Um, I, I'll be honest. I was like half in half out at this point. Cause I was like scrambling to like get Washington time. I actually yeah. missed joy and only saw it in the credits. I was like, Oh, that's funny. But she also works at the possibly now bankrupt Macy's. Oh out. yes. Yes. Um, but it is this thing of like, you see uh, her, she's doing a whole placenta pit. She's, she's reeling them in. She's got she's, presence. She's got a routine. She's got the mic and she uses this opportunity, not just to sell some makeup, but to, to sell some jokes. You know, <laughs> uh, but it's like it's worked a, retail. Uh, yes, I worked at the yeah. Disney store. Oh, my God. Yeah. A nightmare scenario in which much like Julie Kavner and this is my life. You have to be performing all the time. You cannot behave like a normal human being. The, the managers would come up and give you notes. I'm and like line readings in um, food and drink. But I also did work in a menswear store, which is the most boring job in the world because no man ever wants to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> like no man goes into a menswear store and it's like, what do you think? Like, you know, they're usually just like, they just get their shirts and they leave. They're like, goodbye. It's all did- just folding shirts. I worked at J. Crew and okay. uh, many years ago. And when they put me in the men's department, I was like, this is the worst shit in the world. Cause like they didn't want help. They wouldn't flirt. They were all married. It was just like, well, what is the point of being alive in this store if right. I can't, you know? Right. Fine. I mean, judging right. by most anyone who wants I've to seen, flirt has no money to go to a menswear store or doesn't know what a menswear store is. Like they're, or, they're right, yeah. Or what I was going to say from most movies I've seen, if you're an employee at a clothing store who wants men to flirt with you you should work in the women's department. Yeah. And yes. then it's yeah. the like, oh, I'm buying this for uh, my mother. And then you start dating some scumbag who pretends he wasn't in a relationship when you met. Yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah, it's sweet. It's old fashioned. Guys, remember flirting with people in menswear stores. Oh my God. Don't even say the F word to me right now because I am losing it. Did I say that close enough into the microphone? That's why I'm truly, I've turned into Nell. Like I'm walking, (laughs) I see a leaf in Riverside Park and I'm like spinning around. I'm out of my mind. I I will say you, you, Michelle, said that you, this movie made you cry. I I got really verklempt at several different points. The first of which was unexpectedly uh, within like the first five minutes of this movie. Uh, Estelle Harris dies. She yeah. leaves behind the inheritance, mm-hmm. and it makes Julie Kavner realize this is my opportunity. I have money now. We can right. move to the city, and I can make a real go of being a stand-up. She, she flips their queen's house, and they move to the Upper West Side. Right, and then there's and a is- montage of them driving uh, over the bridge into yeah. Manhattan. Through that, Central Park. That 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 made me uh, yeah. so close to tears because of the nostalgia I had for a place where I currently live but cannot really access. It wasn't even like, oh, the New York of my youth. Like, I was expecting, oh, I'm going to remember what New York was like in the 90s. It was literally just most of these blocks look the same and I can't walk them anymore. Right. No, it, I thought the same thing. I was like, 
Or is that a Dwayne Reed? I was like weeping, like yeah. Dwayne Reed, like all these stories. It's it was hard to watch. Losing my mind. And it's like an extended, just like clearly not stock footage, just like the the perspective of the front seat of a car turning <laughs> corners, driving through like six different areas of Manhattan. And mm-hmm. all of it just made me so overwhelmed. While a Carly Simon song plays, because Carly <laughs> Simon wrote an entire album for this movie. Uh, including a song like that became a hit. nothing to do with the movie. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the movie. She, it's like, the only moving, legacy she's like, this yeah, movie the has. love of my life. And yeah. I'm like, who's the love of whose life? I thought they were moving. Dan Aykroyd? That's what these songs are about? <laughs> Fucking Aykroyd? What do you think? That she has like a friendship with Nora Ephron and Nora was like, look, I'm, I'm directing almost like Favor soundtrack. Yeah. Like, it look, might I'm directing be, this thing. It might be that. And maybe, and it was also right. Like it's like after Working Girl, it's like if you want your rom com to, you know, to really sing, right? Um, but the only thing I do know about this movie is that um, Julie Kavner was cast in a smaller role. My guess, probably the Carrie Fisher role, something like that. Interesting. And Joe Roth, who is in charge of Fox, yeah, you know, the legendary chairman of Fox, was like, no, we she should be the lead. Like the the at the lead should be someone we don't know because it's about someone getting famous. Wow. So like yeah. So that is and Nora Ephron says that like that's why the movie's good. Kavner has no vanity. It's like like she doesn't care about anything like, you know, making the character more sympathetic or anything like that. I, I do think she is also one of the only actors I have ever seen playing a stand up where mm. in those performance scenes, you really buy her being a stand-up. Like, there's something about the energy she has on stage, uh, especially, like, that sequence where they do, they see her in Vegas, and she's mm-hmm. doing the routine with the looks. I was like, she actually has, like, a very specific stand-up timing, aside from the fact that she's someone who, like, did a live studio audience uh, sitcom, clearly has, like, experience working with a crowd, is naturally funny. Uh, there's that thing of like, a lot of actors can play a musician, but the thing that's hard to buy is an actor playing a rock star because there's something about the energy on stage and how they feed off the audience that like, if you haven't done it, just doesn't ring true. And Kavner in this, like you buy it in a way that, you know, many actors, I don't. I felt like she was good Certainly better, and not to throw this show under the bus, but a show that I have a real problem with the stand-up is uh, Mrs. Maisel, mm-hmm. only because yeah. the the jokes are so bad in it. Yeah. And she's a great actress. It's really not her fault. It's like whatever whoever's writing the stand-up doesn't know how to write stand-up jokes. Yeah. I don't care what era you're in. So it makes it really annoying as a performer to watch her and be like, are you fucking kidding? It sucks. Like, nothing funny about this. Sure. Other than that, she's like small-ribbed. You know, that's the one thing that she's got little ribs. Other than that, I don't really see what's so funny. But with, I agree with you that she was good. I just, I get very secondhand embarrassed embarrassed yes. um, when I just see any actor doing scripted stand-up. Like it just inherently makes, it's like watching someone It rap. doesn't feel spontaneous at all. Yeah. And you can tell, yeah. you can always tell. You're right. It's like scripted. She is good. She was good. No, she was good. Yeah. Um, but even like the pauses and the beats and the fake audience laughter for me, it's a little bit like, Oh, it makes, I don't know. I want it to like mildly armadillo. Not the armadillo, mild. I agree. And I think think it is less embarrassing than most actors playing stand-up. And I also think, in a way, 
this movie isn't trying to position her as being like an amazing genius stand up. They're right. positioning her as someone who just like is kind of confident enough as a performer. Mm-hmm. Their material is just good enough. And Children's they've like, dots. that's fine. Right. They've established like their brand. Like they have their like their catchphrases. Like this is my life. And they got the dots thing. And you're like, this person totally could have ascended to like a mid level of visibility for two years in the 90s. You know, like she's just good enough to buy that Um, because you mentioned the Joe Roth thing on the opposite side of the coin. uh, John Peters, who we've really been talking about a lot on this podcast, comes up a lot. He comes up a lot. uh, Notoriously kind of uh, one of the most uh, blowhardy producers of Hollywood in the 80s and 90s. uh, he said, the film was originally at Columbia Pictures right. where uh, John Peters was uh, before they put it into Turnaround in 1990. Uh, and this is the quote from Wikipedia. One of the only things on the Wikipedia page. Efron allegedly asked John Peters if he had read the script. He answered, I've made over 60 movies. I don't have to read a script to know whether it works or not. I, but I don't get what that even means. It, this is what it means. By all accounts, John Peters is functionally illiterate and has <laughs> right. never read a script in his life. Yeah, yeah. So someone was just like, it's about a comedian and she's going to, and he's like, no, no, thank you, Correct. goodbye. And right. he tried to like make that seem like it was like, my instincts are so strong, I don't even have to read it. Mm. When in fact, if someone put a paper in front of him, he would break out in a cold sweat. Well, I As mean, opposed he was to Dan of- Aykroyd, where if you put a paper in front of him, he makes a fucking meal out of it, literally. He's playing he's playing Sam Cohn, who's famously ate paper. Yes. Oh. The, yeah. the founder of ICM, one of the most influential agents of all time, famously ate paper. And Nora Ephron put it in the movie to show, like, look at all these weird eccentricities that, like, agents and reps have. And then a lot of critics were like, this is, like, so broad. Like, this movie <laughs> is so sick, Tommy. There's a guy who eats paper. <laughs> Isn't it funny that my one thought when I was watching that in quarantine was... God, he's like only eating paper and he's still not thin. I was like, that's got to suck. It's, like, it's Ackroyd at his most uh, robust. Yes. He's yes. quite needy in it. It's like yes. micro Ackroyd. Yes. And um, I was just like, uh, if I ate napkins all day, I better be walking a runway next week. Like the fact <laughs> that he's so pudgy. Uh, yes. I was feeling, I was upset. He, he does not have the figure of a man on the, on the napkin diet. But I don't no. think he eats paper <laughs> to diet. He eats paper. It's like a power move. It's like a mic, isn't it? Like pica, what do they call it? Like people pica, that's what they call it, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love stuff. Um, but yeah, they moved to New York and, or no, but even before they moved to New York, there's the scene where she drives the girls into the city to meet with the agent. Yeah. Yeah. The and mom. gets the rejection. So you're getting the sense of just like, uh, she is limited by how much she can put herself out there. But uh, also it's just like that weird sense that the kids know what she does, but they don't really know what she does. Like they don't really right. see her being a comedian for a long time. They're mm-hmm. just into the idea of her as a comedian. Like they love but, that their mom does this magic thing. But also that like everything in entertainment, but especially stand up is like a numbers game where it's right. just like you are going to succeed such a small percentage of the time, both in terms of like people who will hire you, people who will rep you after you meet with them, but also just shows that she yeah. is so limited by being a full-time mom and being like a you know bridge and tunnel away from most of the clubs. Um, so yes, Estelle Harris dies. They flip the house. They move to the Upper West Side. Yep. Is there the anything mu- you want to say about this? 
David, oh, because you boy. teased something in All the right. Slack that I am now well, going to force. Everyone knows that I grew up in England. What? You grew up where? I grew up in England. I moved to England when I was yeah. nine years old. Yeah, we all know uh, that. Yeah, right. Okay. Lived there right. for we 13 years. Michelle yes. might not actually know this because we, we haven't really dug into my life. Okay. Uh, well, this is but, my life, one might say. Okay. But Michelle, um, for the record, I know this. It's very well established. Let me just but, say that's probably why I like you because I love the English people. So. Um, yeah. Um, but before I lived in England, I moved to England from the Upper West Side where I lived what? for the first nine years of my life. How am I just hearing about this for the first time? My you grew mom, up in the United States? My mom moved to the Upper West Side when she was, uh, I don't know, 23 years old or whatever, when she moved to New York, basically. And she lived there from the 70s all the way through 1995, the same apartment. Are you saying that we could call you Uptown Davy Sims? That's right. Whoa. I was an Uptown boy. Wow. Can I ask why you moved to England? My dad got a job like my dad was English, but also like then then he got a job in England and like we did like a year where he was there and we were still in New York because we weren't oh, yeah. sure what to do. But then it was clear. It was like, no, he's got to stay. So we all moved to England in 95. Wow. Exciting. Were you in London? Yep. North London, baby. Kentish Town. Kentish Town is nice. I know. Do you know um, off the record? Uh, I yeah, just of course. have to edit that out because it's actually my friend's address. <laughs> <laughs> you just listed the specific house number. Make a note, please, to cut we'll that out. We'll bleep it out. We'll bleep it out. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, inqu- uh, well, oh, I was I was actually going to say more, but I shouldn't say more. No, do you um, know where it is? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. Um, but yes, but before then, I was an Upper West Side boy, and I do love an Upper West Side in the '90s movie, and that is this is that movie. For sure. Yes. Back when the Upper West Side was still a middle class neighborhood. And I mean, when my mom moved there, it was dangerous. Like, you know, whatever. I also, I like the energy. Manhattan. Like, there's there's the scene where they're meeting with the lawyer and going over the inheritance. And he's yeah. like, and she's like, oh, so yeah. I have the house now? Like, how much? I'm sorry. She's like, I get the house now? And how much could I sell it for? You're doing um, really good. I'm, I'm going to be spot on perfect by the end of this. Um. And he's like, I don't know, somewhere upwards of like a hundred thousand dollars. And she's like, How much upwards? Like that's a that's a lot of territory there. Um, but the idea that like that's a big lump of money to get all at once. But also the next thing you see is she's moved into a doorman building in the Upper West Side. Hey, like baby. I love the idea that she's like not being conservative with the money she yeah. just came into. She's like, This is my chance to right. make. And a, a real shot at living the life I've dreamed about. I'm going to go straight to the nice apartment and try to like dress for the job I want and go all in, push all the chips in on the stand up career. I respect right. that personally. I think that's, you know, that's the way to be. I love spending every dollar I earn. Did you know that about you me? Got, you gotta. And, and, yeah. and a little more even, honestly, I think you want to spend a dollar yeah. more than you've made. Yeah, always. They came out with a new cheap iPhone. I was like, okay, no thanks. I'm like earning almost no money now. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm good. I'll get the 11 Pro. Thank you. Uh, add a couple zeros to that and we're talking. <laughs> yeah. You refuse to buy cheap products. I just won't do it. I yeah. won't. 
Um, uh, so I respect that. Yeah, she could also be renting that apartment. You know, you know. But even it. still, but even still, it's like the point is in a lot yeah, of yeah. movies like this, she she's expect, not making the conservative choice. In no, most no. movies where someone moves to New York City to follow their dreams, the apartment you see them move into that they're renting is, like is a flea like, bitten, yeah, kind of. Right, yeah. it's it's like the Blues Brothers yeah. apartment. Right. You know, you I mean, can hear the neon that. lights and gunshots yeah. for, uh, next door. And like, even if she's renting it, she goes straight to like, I'm going to fucking like fake it till I make it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the scene that I love is you said, David, that like they know their mom is funny, but they have no idea whether she's funny in a professional way. And they've never right. seen her do it. And mm-hmm. then the first time you see her do stand up is when they go to the club, meet Carrie Fisher for the first time, which is after that scene where you see all her stand up friends that she's been making come over for dinner. <gasps> including Tim Blake Nelson in his first film role ever. Incredible one scene performance from uh, He's got two. He's got two. Well, okay, fine. But you, you know what I mean? Like that, that, yes. the, the, the fish monologue. Uh, I saw him do one of those like recent career retrospective all my roles videos online for some magazine. And he said that she let him write his own material. So wow. all of his limerick wow. jokes are Tim Blake Nelson originals, I believe. Who's the name of the guy who was also in like the Three Stooges movie, Bob? Um, I want to say it's also Nelson, but you know the guy, oh, the bald yes. guy. Yeah, yes. it's it's Bob Nelson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. He's also He's great. Kathy yeah. and Jamie. Yes. And are you are any of these Seinfeld people? Oh yes, of course. Did you recognize um, Jerry's girlfriend in the movie? Yes, as one of the two who babysit, right? Uh, Mar- yeah. Yes. Yeah. I got excited. I always love a Seinfeld callback. Oh yeah. Oh, it's it's such a pleasure to see that she's a uh, girl that Newman wouldn't date because she wasn't her, his type. It's the, it's, it's the <laughs> big salad episode. Yes, big salad. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Oh, God, that's she's so pretty. Um, m- 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 wait, wait. Her name is Mar- Marita Garrity. That's her name. Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, all that. right. So, who's the comedian? Does the baby routine? That's, that's that's Ed. That's Bob Nelson. That's Bob right? Nelson. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is an insane act, and I can't oh. imagine that existing <laughs> anywhere. And that he's honing it. It really it threw me off. Look, I just it, got, I kept being like, that okay, guy used to go on gonna... Carson all the time. He was yeah. like really weird, right? I, I have no idea. Are you joking? Yes. Is it based off a real guy? No, Bob Nelson. Right? Like Bob, oh, Bob the Nelson. actor Bob oh, Nelson. Bob, yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He was in Kindergarten Cop. He played the boyfriend of the uh, other police officer. I mean, I feel like these are exaggeratedly shitty versions of the types of comedy acts that were happening during the comedy boom in the 90s. when people were so desperate to be like, I got to have such a clean hook. You know, like all these people are getting sitcom deals. I need to be the blank guy. So Mm -hmm. as much as I like, I don't know if you'd ever actually see a dude who wears a hat with a fish head sticking out of it, doing solely (laughs) fish film themed limericks. It's it's maybe only 5% over the top from what was actually happening on TV at that time. Like that guy might have gotten a spot on uh, Arsenio. What about that on, are we allowed to go a bit ahead in the movie? Sure. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, a, uh, A cameo that I personally really enjoyed was Alan Cleghorn. Yes. Who yes. played one of the talk show hosts. And Ellen Cleghorn to me has always been um, a comedian who I believe never really got her due. I she agree. did not. And I don't know why that is. I always found her hilariously funny. She's funny in this. 
It's and the SNL. If you don't make it on SNL and then you never really like happen, then you become it. That just becomes your entire career. It's like, well, flamed out on SNL. She did like a half season WB sitcom in like the first year that the WB was a thing. Oh, wow. Called like Ellen. I believe it was called Cleghorn. Cleghorn. Yeah. <laughs> Ellen was taken. Griffin. It was actually called Cleghorn. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> It yeah, was, and, the other one. and yeah. it was with Garrett Morris. Oh, wow. An- I mean, another like both two legends. Who, yes. And never had the post SNL careers they deserved. And Ellen Cleghorn mm-hmm. is like, I think it is a combination of racism and sexism. Honestly, because Jay- I actually would say Garrett Morris had a big, much bigger career than Ellen. It wasn't as big totally. as she was in, but yeah. Right. Totally. I mean, and he had the worst career of all the original cast members from yeah. SNL. Uh, but but yeah, it's like one of those things where you're like, she should have been doing roles like this for the next 20 years. There's no excuse for why Ellen Cleghorn didn't become, at the very least, just like a steadily working ace in the whole character actress. And she like rarely shows up. She did a bit on the SNL 40th special and she was so fucking funny. She's oh, funny. She's she yeah. has that scene in Armageddon. I always think about that. She's so good. Uh, she's the nurse doing all their physicals great scene um anyway uh i do yeah all all that comedy stuff is good it's nicely sprinkled in like all those it's it always feels like it's from the kids perspective yeah so they always feel like appropriately cartoonish if that makes like you know they're like these weirdos that would be in the house that you would just remember right they have everyone over for dinner and the kids clearly are like these people are comedians but there's also (laughs) the joy of for the first time mom has friends who also do comedy Mm-hmm. As opposed to just like coworkers who know that she's funny, um, but I love that they just like you still haven't seen her do stand up up until this point. That scene ends with her revealing that she has an agent after right. someone makes a joke about having an agent, and then everyone looks at her with like like a dead eye, seething like, sociopathic jealousy. <laughs> Kathy Namiji does a great bit where she pretends to stab herself. Uh, in her cleavage. It's a, it's a yes. good, good, good butter knife bit. That's how I'm ending the pod. That's why I'm in my worst bra. <laughs> I'm going to take a knife right in the middle of my chest. Uh, I love seeing Kathy Najini. She's a genius. Let me also say that I have never identified more with a moment on film than watching a bunch of comedians be jealous of another comedian for their success. <laughs> right. That, it, it felt like very appropriate. It really They're not happy at all. It's really yeah. hard. I don't know if it's like this in all businesses, but like, when you hear someone getting a Netflix special and it can be someone you like, when it's someone you don't like, you literally want to just blow your brains out. <laughs> but when it's somebody you like, yeah. even though you're like, that's awesome. I'm and you tweet like, yay, I love this person. But deep down you're hating yourself. And that is right there. Why it is um, the worst uh, business to be in? Yes. Uh, anytime someone retweets someone else's good news, uh, yeah. comedian to comedian and frames it as like, it, 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 so well deserved so not deserved. only one of the funniest people in comedy but also one of the nicest yes it means they are seething with rage <laughs> at the job that that person just bought wait a minute is that the name of my new podcast seething with rage it might it's be good. it might be or barely in the union you're you're establishing a couple new shows I'm in this new one chris podcast appearance. I'm chris you might be building an entire network worth of wow. shows. Wow, you boys are really inspiring me today. Thank you. Okay. It's a but gift. you call it seething with rage, but the whole podcast is just you saying how nice your guest is. Like you never oh acknowledge the title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, such a major fan. Please welcome one of my just 
favorite guests, yeah. and I'm like speaking so slowly. One of the funniest oh, people God. out there, but more importantly, one of the good, genuinely good people in yeah. comedy. Supports other women. That's yes. how you know that. Oh, love supports women. Um, right. That's the biggest bullshit lie in comedy, by the way. When you, I don't even know where to begin with this one. I just will say this. I find, well, I don't want to say because I like to work and I actually don't want to make any enemies. <laughs> But there are a lot of people out there who are like, I support women and I support fucking women. Okay. Yeah. Like I, but I don't do it with a whole marching band behind me. I just do it. Like, I don't need a fucking, you know what I'm saying? I don't need to have like my soliloquy yes. about, sure. I do it. You're not you looking for the keys uh, to the city just because you, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, no no de Blasio like, ticker tape parade. It. Yeah. People who do that shit and then rag about it, I'm like, okay, you literally are so bad to women, but I'll allow it because I like to work. We can move on about this. Good for de Blasio, though, guys. I'm two months into this nightmare. Every day I'd wake up and I'd be like, when is the future ticker tape parade for nurses going to be announced? When are we getting it? I need it on the schedule. Finally, our mayor stepped up. This guy, and what you know who steals the the show is, um, I call him weird ASL Yankovic. The guy who yes, does yes. the signing next yes. to de Blasio is yeah. so funny. He makes them, he's like great at it. He's so He electric, feels like wonderful. also like a 90s throwback. Like he feels like a 90s New Yorker. His fashion, yeah. his hair. Right. Oh right. my God. Oh, please. I love him. Yeah. Uh, weird, weird asshole. Uh, Yankovic. That's a hundred comedy <laughs> points. That's yeah, really yeah. good. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and that's, oh God, I, I mean, that's good. Right? Finally, that's, I get asked. I know. That's good out loud. I can only imagine how funny it would be written out. Visually, yeah. that joke is perfect. I think I got seven <laughs> saves on that tweet. So thank you so much for bringing oh, me. Absolutely. It's a real hit. Thank you. This movie has a bunch of scenes and moments and lines in it that are things that I feel like, oh, that's a very specific thing about the world of comedy that I have never seen represented accurately well before. And one of them is the scene where the daughters see her perform for the first time, where they meet Carrie Fisher at the club. They're sitting at a table with her, waiting for mom to go on. The introduction of Dan Aykroyd as well, the Moss showing up to see her for the first time as this legendary agent. And it's like, A, those two character types are so spot on. The Carrie Fisher agent, because I feel like so many people when they do like show busy agent characters, just make them into like monsters, which most they, of them or, are. Or they're like the agent from friends. Like, you know, right. right? It's like a, a cartoonish yeah. tiny old woman who has like a thousand cigarettes in her eyes and is like, <laughs> yeah, bah, bah, right. You know, like, which is funny I, to be clear. Very funny. The very <laughs> specific thing that they're getting right with the Carrie Fisher character, both in Fisher's performance and in the writing is Person who works on the business end of comedy is not a performer, but also desperately wants to hold court at all times. The fact that she's just right. constant stream monologue, chain smoking, she's making all so these cool. jokes to these two young girls where she's like, I need you to think that I'm funny, even though I'm not a performer and I have no aspirations of being a stand up. I work with funny people, but everyone needs to know that secretly I'm the funniest one. It's just like yeah. unspoken, yeah. but so fucking spot on. And then Ackroyd comes in and it's the opposite thing where it's like a guy who seems radically disinterested in all comedy. 
Right. He seems to not even like being outside, like let alone having to watch a performance. He'd rather just be locked up overnight in the napkin factory. That's why I love the spoiler alert. I love the reveal that he's sleeping with Kavner, where both of them, they they barely even make eye contact with each other at any point in the movie. Like they don't give a shit. It's so good. But but the moment when uh, Kavner comes on stage, she's first up and she just like immediately starts working. Like that, she's hitting with the crowd. They like go in on Mathis and Hoffman, and it's like these two girls realizing. I think she literally says it in voiceover. Like I, there she was. Like she was doing it. She was on stage. She was getting laughs. I never realized mom was actually funny. Like I knew we shot thought she was funny, and it's that feeling of like when you meet someone socially who is a comedian Mm -hmm. before you've ever seen them perform. Or you have a friend who's getting into stand-up for the first time, and you're just like, this is so nerve-wracking, because if they suck, I'm never going to be able to talk to them ever again. And the relief you have when they start, like, actually hitting on stage, and you're yeah, like... Yeah, but when they don't, which oh, that's the worst. happens, is right. the worst feeling in the world. The single worst, because you're like, I can't talk to this person again. I can't be friends with them. I cannot pretend okay. that I respect them comedically, even if they're funny at a bar. Um, interesting thing about my family, my mother, who has her own little, um, like internet fan group, fan club, uh, fan group, you know, the famous things. Anyway, (laughs) she, um, (laughs) she is hilarious. Like, honestly, even she can make, if you're on this, you'd be dying from her. She's so funny. But what I realized in my twenties, when I started doing standup, she came to New York and I was like, you have to do a bit on stage with me. Like, it's going to be so funny. She'd never gotten up on stage with me and she got up and she was so nervous and so out of sorts from that, that she bombed. It was honestly one of the most scarring. I remember I'm on that stage as I'm telling the story because I remember the feeling of like having an anvil dropped on me. Like, oh God, <laughs> she's not, she just made such an off-color joke about coming, like my mother. Uh, I was yeah. like, oh my God, this can't be happening. And she was like laughing, but nervously. It just, I think it really stresses her out. And I think that, in fact, when they first saw me perform on stage, which was not that long ago, it was even nerve wracking for my parents. Because what if I wasn't funny as a performer? Yes. And like, thank God I'm great. So they are like, oh, thank God they can now see me and not be wasted. Is the point. Zero concerns. Uh, my father, I, I largely forbid him from coming to see me perform uh, back when I uh, still performed or any of us still performed. Because uh, yeah. the few times he has, he tends to, uh, if he's invoked, uh, start yelling out jokes from the audience as if suddenly we are a two-person <laughs> comedy team. And he just thinks that that's a, you opening conversation with him. Like that's just well, but he no, but he's also mic. but he's trying to be a stand-up. Like he's not responding as if like, oh, I don't understand. This isn't a private conversation. Mm-hmm. And he always the well he always goes to is Ron Jeremy reference. Oi. And it's almost always too oblique to track. Why do your parents work so blue, both of you? I don't know. And I've been wait, doing... podcast name, too oblique to track? Too Just oblique to track. This. Put it on the network, the Collins <laughs> network. I've been doing like more Instagram live shows during all of this. And my dad keeps on crashing the comments and making what? Ron Jeremy jokes. No, that's... Horrible. Wait, oh what, is, what is a Ron Jeremy? Like, come on. Like, what, what joke is he making? He's like, I mean, this is like apropos of nothing in a stream of comments. He'll be like, uh, 
uh, Griff, you you learned that joke from the Ron Jeremy school of comedy. Griff, okay. any any thoughts on Ron Jeremy? Like sometimes that's the joke is just saying that. But Griff, do you remember that the night where I think it was the second time we met after you did my show, and you met and, my father, and I fell in love with your dad. Your dad is like a real flirt, and he's so funny. And I remember being like, Griff's dad is like he's got it. He's like very well, schmoozy. But this he's is what we're charming. talking about. My dad, incredibly charming, uh, very like king of like uh, a cocktail party conversation. Oh my god, like, he was great. So fucking good at it. We had him on the podcast. He tried to cancel like 20 times. We had to like really massage him into it. He was so nervous. He came with mm. 20 pages of notes. He ended up being really good. But he is very much one of those guys where you're like, you're so funny. You could just get up on stage and be funny like your mom. And then he tries to perform and he can't do it. Like he just his instincts go out the window. And there's that moment in this when Kavner's jokes start landing where yeah. you realize like, oh, you've been watching her for like 20 minutes. Be funny in a way that a movie character is funny, where she's making like off the cuff jokes to her daughter. Right, and then right, she gets right. on stage and Kavner really nails the difference in performance of this isn't someone who's just naturally funny. This is someone who actually understands how to frame herself on stage. Mm -hmm. And she is heightened and it is an act. And that moment where you feel that relief of just like, oh, she knows what she's doing is yeah. like this beautiful moment for and her also, daughters to see. And it is the difference, Michelle, what we're talking about of like yeah. when you see someone you know bomb versus when you see someone you know turn out to actually be good and the relief that mm -hmm. feels. But also it's like, you know, you later when they're in Vegas, you see her fans and they're like old, you know, mom type, you know, right, right there, like older yeah. ladies. Like it's clear like she knows who she's... Uh, Exactly. Who she's pitching yeah. herself to. And also when fans will come up to her, she like goes straight back into performance mode where like her response is like, oh, I hope they didn't cancel the show or like whatever, you know, right. like she's got like, got <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going back and forth here on my cabinet. Yeah. Uh, but but she like, yeah, she like she has the persona down separate from the ways that she is funny in conversation it turns out that she's like closer to being ready from the time she moves to New York than you would think. Yeah. Right. I mean, and also after you see her in this performance we're talking about, that's when she sort of leaves the movie and it more becomes about the kids. That's when she's now just getting famous. She's sort of in and out. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's the Samantha Mathis, Gabby Hoffman show. Sorry. What were you going to say, Michelle? No, I just said they're so good in it. Like they have such so a good, good sisterly so connection. Yeah. They're very funny with each other. And it, you know, it's really like a coming of age movie, basically, about this teenage girl who uh, feels rightfully so, in my opinion, abandoned by her mother. Yeah, right. Especially because her mom's a single mom. So there's, you know, there's no one else around. And it's obviously tough on the mom. Uh, but it's not what I like. It's not a movie where they worship the forgotten dad. Like the dad is like not even an entity until right at the end of the movie. Yeah, and then when true. he shows up, he's not an entity. I mean, that's the the sort of twist with the right, dad, I guess. Right. Um, but yeah, her, it's annoying. It's sucky. I would, I would resent it too, even though like as a viewer, I understand it. You know, they, everyone but is good at, at making you sympathize with everybody. When the parents aren't around, you can get into trouble. You can like That's bring true. over, you know, someone and make out with them. 
You can fall in love with the dorkiest boy in the world. Well, yeah. Ben was disappointed this movie didn't turn into House Party once she became famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get a flat top. Um, were any of you abandoned by parents? I guess is a good question. <laughs> no. No. I was a latchkey kid. That counts. Yeah, I mean, my mom was like a city hall reporter. She got home later. Dinner time was at like 8 o'clock. Or whatever, eight thirty. Like mm-hmm. you know, that was just sort of. But that was just like how they figured it out. Like it was like, look, this is when we get home, so you're just gonna stay up late. Yeah, my my dad would work late, but then the weekends were mostly dad time, and my mom would like lock herself in her room. <laughs> like it was like, I'll take these five days, and then I need two days to just fucking decompress. I I found watching it, and I don't know if, I don't know how it works if we can jump ahead or not. Yeah, but- yeah, you can jump ahead. We're, there's, it's not a potty movie. In the words of Christopher Cross, we could jump around. God bless. Um, say it like Marge. And jump around. Here comes the oh, shack me? attack. <laughs> That's my favorite Marge line. <laughs> Look out for the shack attack. I said Christopher Cross instead of Criss Cross, too. I fucked mm. up my own joke. That's a different guy, different singer. I know. Um, I know. So uh, what I was going to say, though, is that her little romance with uh, Jay Sherman's son from The Critic was yes oh my god that's so spot on yeah (laughs) i was like this is what's his little name by the way i rewatched all of the critic like the first week of quarantine oh yeah and it really holds up it is so funny i was like i don't know what it is about this being locked inside that's making me revert to things i loved when i was like 15 but i've been going back to watch a lot i know a lot of people who are doing this watching just like cartoons and stuff they used to love yes Absolutely. It feels healthy. I think it's comfort, you know, yeah. in a way. Yes. I've been watching yeah. a fair amount of uh, uh, primetime cartoons that got canceled uh, under one season. Uh, like what? I watched all of Mission Hill, which I think is very good. The mm-hmm. the show that Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein did after they quit The Simpsons. Uh, uh-huh. And is all uh, viewable on YouTube. It's a really good show. Um, but uh, also, I just, I said this on another podcast but I just immediately, like day two of quarantine, was like, I'm going to watch the first 10 Adam Sandler movies. Oh, wow. And you did it? Yeah, I just did it. I was just, I'm just going to watch like everything through to 2003. And what does that include? Zohan is not in that, right? No, no. that's the next wave, which I'm about to embark on. I did okay. everything through to anger management. But Michelle, it sounds like you're us, that you're a big Zohan fan. Like you're a big Zohan, Zohan fan. I'm a big Zohan I'm a Zohan we, yeah, I love. I love it. This is a podcast <laughs> that regularly considers that Zohan might be his crowning achievement. Yeah. Let me yeah. tell you this. I believe that the um, the Golden Globe. I wish he had been nominated for an Oscar, so I could say I think that was to make up for not nominating him for Zohan. Yeah. He is so funny in Zohan, and you yes. know my mother's from Israel, so it's like a very close oh, story. Oh family. man, yeah. If you have any family in Israel, you just know the culture. It yes. is like a love letter to that country in a way because it's all. It's so the funniest. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I mean, it's terrible. It's like every movie where the first half an hour, you're like on the floor laughing and then the rest of the movie is just unwatchable. But (laughs) that first half hour, have you ever seen the stopper Price is Right on SNL? Yes, yes. One of my favorite sketches ever. Yeah. It's a top sketch for me of all time. It's essentially an entire movie of that sketch. That's what it is. It's the movie based on that sketch. Literally. Yeah. I believe the story behind that movie too is that like because they loved Sabra Price's right so much when yeah. they did it on SNL, which Smigel wrote, when and, S- and was the announcer by the yes. way on it. Mm-hmm. When when Sandler had like his first or second movie, like after maybe Happy Gilmore, they were like, "Let's write this script 
And then they made the script, shopped around to everyone, and they were like, you will never make this movie. What the fuck are you doing? Mm -hmm. And to an extent, the next 10 years plus of Adam Sandler's career were him trying to build up the like box office prowess that no one could turn down Zohan anymore. And they didn't. And you know what? I'm glad it was made. It's better than some of his other movies, for sure. It's better than most of them. It might be the best one. Thank you for being on my side about this. Absolutely. But the little little guy that she sleeps with. Oh, he's so good. I'm looking up his name now. Uh, I looked him up already. He has like no credits, I believe, after 2005. He has a very tragic story. No, does he? he? He does, yeah. He's not he, alive he was bipolar and had addiction issues, and and he is unfortunately not alive anymore. No, you're oh. kidding. I'm not. Yeah. there's a very he had a whole career before. I mean, he was in like I don't know. He was in a bunch of stuff, right? Like he was in IQ. Yes. I was, am I like a bad person? I was like, he doesn't have any credits after 2005. I had the same thing. Like, date of death. 2005. It looks I mean, like yeah. his last movie was. That was basically what planet are you from? I mean, he was never yeah. a big star. He just has like a bunch of sort of like, you know, sitcom credits and Danny supporting Zorn. roles or whatever. Danny oh, Zorn. No. Yeah. oh, he died in 2012, 40. Poor guy. That yeah. sucks. Yeah. Jordan Strang, uh, his sister, I think it's on Huffington Post. There's a really good piece that his sister wrote about him and sort of the lack of good infrastructure for healthcare in this country. Oh God, don't even go there with me. It's horrible. Uh, yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's a good piece if you want to feel depressed, uh, but it's, uh, you know, someone standing up and saying, uh, we need to build a society that offers more support to people like this. I've uh, been in such a great mood lately. I could really go for a downer right now. Yeah. So I think I'll look that up. Yeah, if you need a, a push me down, what's the opposite of a pick me up? Yeah, I need someone to shove me down, baby. Yeah, I, if you could just find this thing. Yeah, there's nothing going on in the world that's really no. troubling at all. No. Yeah. I'm feeling too good. No. <laughs> My nostrils are breathing in the same stale air since uh, February 28th oh, yeah. of 2020. But yeah, right, we absolutely. all basically just live on an airplane now, live on yeah. our mm-hmm. own airplane. Yeah, you're breathing in that leap day air. Um, God, I love that leap day air. Go yeah, on. but this, this kid is so fucking good. And this section of the movie is just like, because I was so ready for like, oh, this is one of those weird first movies like James Cameron making Piranha 2, where then the second film, the director is just fully formed. Like suddenly the next movie is Sleepless in Seattle and she just has it all down. But this movie has so many good touches. Like for someone who doesn't come from a filmmaking background, doesn't come from a technical background, is just a writer. She clearly is just such a good storyteller. That there are even some really nice visual touches in like how this movie is handled. And the sex scene in particular is just oh like the framing of everything is so ideal where yes. it's it's so honestly awkward. Like it is one of yes. the only oh, teen sex great. scenes I have so seen bad. that is awkward in the Does way he that say it's over. I can't remember what exactly his <laughs> yes. like and she's like, it's, oh, either, it is? it's over, it's done. It's done. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Just the writing, the performances, the framing, the editing. Like, I feel like all teen sex scenes are either way too sexy or way too awkward in, like, a Porky's way, where it's just like, well, no human being has ever behaved like this. Like, and this has, like, the patience to make it, like, the actual comedy moments are just like, let's hold on the close-up while he's trying to get the condom on out oh my of frame God. for, yeah. like, a full minute. Incredible. You know? 
But like, it's not a bit because the condom thing I feel like in teen movies is normally it's slipping around. Totally, like, right. they don't They're know like, how Whoa. to put it on. They're putting it on their head. It's like surprising. They do put it on their head a lot, which is a, a classic mistake. Such well, a classic mistake. It doesn't go there. All those Howie Mandel teen movies. <laughs> oh, are we talking about Howie Mandel? Because I have time. Please. I'll be here all damn day. I love me some Mandel. I mean, well, hey, you you said you were charmed by my father. My father was regularly mistaken for Mandel in the 80s. It was, I'm going to send you a photo, Michelle, when this is done. Dead fucking ringer. Having, to the I have seen your dad in the 80s, and yes. I'm going to say something that you're not going to like. What? What if I was like, I have slept with Howie Mandel, and it was the most incredible night of my life. No. I, he did my show. Okay. And uh, I was so ready for that to be true. in person. What is he, 60? Yeah. Howie, you know, I think not touching germs helps. Yeah. Like, he always knew. Howie was always ahead of the curve. Him and Mark Summers. Mandel has been there, and he was so funny and so attractive wow. that it actually really threw me for a loop. I wow. was not prepared. Wow. Thank you for letting me speak my truth. Of course. Uh, He's 64 <laughs> years old. He's good. Jeez. He looks, look at me. Yeah. He looks better than me right now. I'll tell you, I will not. I, he looks 10 times better than me. And not true. <laughs> he does. My, my dad would literally, people at bars would be like, Mandel, Mandel, can I take That's a photo? Weird. And my dad would very calmly have to say like, uh, I'm sorry. I know I look like him. I'm not Howie Mandel. And people would not accept it. They were like, oh, I see how it is. Trying to big time us, Mandel. <laughs> Just because you, you know Ed Begley Jr. doesn't mean yeah. you're better than me. You don't have time for your fans, Mandel. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. I, I just wanted you to yeah. sign my Bobby's World standee. Oh, I love Bobby's World. Great show. Oh that might be my next quarantine watch, actually. People used to stop my mother in the early 70s and they thought that she was Julie Newmar. Oh, um, oh. the actress. Yeah. Very beautiful, and which is why I have issues. And she would uh, sign autographs as Julie Newmar. Wow. Oh, so she would just she would just go for it. She didn't give a shit. My mother was an out like out in a loud lunatic, you know? Yeah. She would be well, like, Meow from Julie. Well, I've I've I talked know. about this before, but my my mom <laughs> used to be a, a like, frequently mistaken for Holly Hunter. And she wow. would do the Griffin's like, don't mother ask, don't looks tell very thing. similar to Holly Hunter. Very similar. Yeah, weird. And like, they're the same size and everything. She doesn't sound like her. The voice is very different, no. but she would do the don't ask, don't tell thing where like, if she went into a store and started getting special treatment, right. she would she'd be do like, oceans 12. I can tell they think I'm Holly Hunter. I'm going to speak as little as possible and just not give them any reason to think I'm not, but not lie. I like that though. Yeah. I think yeah. women for the most well it depends on who it is, but usually flattered. Yeah. Depend. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was I gonna say about the scene we were talking about? Oh, well, awkward, it, awkward I, boy. Awkward boy. Uh the, the the decision and it's like not called out, but the child's bed where the angle she chooses for the majority of the actual sex is like heavily framed around his headboard which yeah. is some like child's cowboy design. It's so good. It's so good. And I also think this actor who is so good, it's so tragic what happened okay. to him. But um, when he shows up on screen, I was like, oh boy, is this going to be like, this kid is such a loser. The movie is like really dunking on him. They let him be really charming in spite of him being a very goofy kid. Seen in the park, you're like, I understand why she would fall for this guy. And I it feels like 
Oh my God. It was so cute and nice and like innocent and sweet. It was nice. It's like the inverse of Nick Cage and Peggy Sue got married where it's like, oh, the guy who was hot in your mind's eye and the movie wants you to realize that he was actually really lame. So he does Mm -hmm. the dorky voice. And in this, it's like this kid looks like a classic teen movie dork. And then when he starts talking to her, you're like, he's like a good listener. He's pretty charming. He makes good jokes. And that scene afterwards where the mom seems like very like new wave accepting, walking in on them having sex. She's a gynecologist. Yes. Yes. And then you find out it's because she's a gynecologist. And she makes them sit down for a lesson. And she, I I know you recognize these. Your ovaries Uh is a very good line. It's so good. All of this is so good. And I love that Samantha Mathis and the narration frames it as like, and mom disappears just while the most important thing of my entire life happened. No, that's just, that's the back half of this movie, right? It's the Mathis thing. It's the, her, her resentment building up to the point that she decides to take an Amtrak to Albany or whatever to try and find her dad. Right. Mm. You see uh, Julie Kavner, them watching Kavner on, I think it's on the Cleghorn show. This is that scene, right? Where right. she it's makes the, it's the, the joke material. Right. Yeah. about uh, her daughter changing her name to the boyfriend's name. And Samantha mm. Mathis like flips out. Yeah. And, and early in the movie, they keep on saying like, you got to give us credit. Like that was our joke. We were the ones who told you to do a bit about that. But for the mm. first time, they're becoming the material. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is like, it's the everything is copy thing. Like you can tell it rings true for yeah. Efron, who also co-wrote this with Delia Efron. Like it's two sisters writing a movie to be directed by one of them mm. as the children of a playwright, screenwright mother who told them everything should be turned into material. Yeah. And, um, I just I I just love the thing with the dad when they're like so many of these movies, the dad is going to be a fuck up. And instead, he's yeah. just like, oh, it's you. Oh, hi. What's up? Like, you know, like he's just so uninterested in them. It's it's one of two things. It's either like the dad is a major fuck up asshole. He's or... like a charming fuck up. He's like Kyle Chandler in the spectacular now. Right. We're like, well, I get it. But also this guy can't like hold it together. Or it's like end of boyhood Ethan Hawke where you're like, oh, it's a shame. Like now he has a family. He knows how to be a dad. Took him a while to figure it out. Right. Could have been me. I I was stuck being the first kid. And this, it's just like, he's just such a piece of shit in such a lame way. He looks like an ad for an accountant before the movie starts. I was like, (laughs) okay. That was his face. And that's a person, let me add that I found the performance almost borderline anti-Semitic. Comes this guy and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Will like, Nazi direct this? Everyone in this movie is Jewish though. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he's like, so you're my kids and what am I expected to do about it? Yeah, Buffalo, <laughs> what do you want from me? A hug and a kiss? <laughs> yeah, oh, your mother's a comic, big surprise. Uh, a lot of people used to laugh at it behind the back, but anyway, all right. It was like, so, I was like, what? Like, well, who made the choice to make him? This like weirdo accountant, nasty Jewish guy. Yeah. It was so weird and ugly. That well, having been said, he, he's not an attractive man. That having been said, he's, he's ugly. Complete, he's just completely uninspiring. Like there's the only yeah. thing he can do is buy them a ticket home. Like that is his only yeah. like. You know who was good? The wife, who's a well-known actress. I was going to say she's Caroline great. Aaron. Uh, yeah, she's and great. she's in a lot of these. Uh, oh yeah, you know these Efron movies. And that's example of Love like her. a character that is so often just so shitty. 
But no, yeah, but she's just polite about it. She's like, oh yeah, he might have mentioned he had some daughters. Yeah, no, like a lifetime ago. You want some lemonade? Yeah, and also, what kind of woman marries a man who has two grown daughters and he's a fucking piece of shit? If this were my husband, I'd be like, get your bald accounting ass up, (laughs) and you. Father, those children. Are you kidding? What kind it, of a monster is she? It's, it's tough in like Rensselaer or wherever it is they live. Like, come on. I do think Caroline Aaron, though, like in her performance, actually convincingly sells the one type of woman who would yeah. be oblivious enough to not tell her husband to be a better father she, while also she, not being angry at the past wife and kids. All right. Who's just like, oh, oh, okay, right. Like, oh, the daughters. Right. Right. Um, okay. Uh, right. Man, I knew I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He mentioned, yeah, he mentioned uh, that. He went to, uh, he went to Cornell. <laughs> he had two daughters. I, I always forget these things. She's even like, he does something in middle something. <laughs> yeah. Like something in the middle. I oh, don't he's really a, know. A middleman for fruit. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And by the way, like, how old is Gabby Hoffman in this movie? Eight? At most, uh, if that. I yeah. mean, seven. It's not like the kids are twenty-seven years old and they're right. like, "Daddy, she's yeah. a tiny girl." Yeah, it's cool. No, it, that, it's, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. No, she has so much more warmth to them than he does. But it is to the point. Like, what kind of woman would not uh, uh, tell her husband to be a better father or tell them keep him in the rear view? I never want to hear you talk about them again. The exact type of woman who doesn't know what her husband does for a living. Maybe. <laughs> You might have a point, actually. Like, it's pretty consistent characterization. I agree with you that in real life, it's hard to imagine someone doing that. But I think this film creates a good example. The other moment that I think is just such a good, like, Efron uh, kind of shorthand is the whole sort of extended Vegas chunk. where, yeah, where they Which is where the, they discover that she's uh, in a romantic relationship with. Dan Aykroyd as well. But that whole mini yeah. arc with Gabby yeah. Hoffman falling in love with the tech guy. He's so cute with his right, Mets cap. Like cute mid-20s guy who treats an eight-year-old like a grown-up, which to her is just like, oh my God, this is what love must feel like. Like someone right. is actually respecting me and is like letting me wear the hat and sit in the chair. And she just keeps on looking up at him so lovingly. And then her and Samantha Mathis have such different responses to Julie Kavner's bit about falling in love, which is right. her best stand-up bit in the movie, I think. Um, but, but the fact that Mathis is furious because she's like, mom's a hypocrite. There's no way she believes in love. She's not even like saying material that means anything to her anymore. And Gabby Hoffman is like, I get it. Like, finally, this rings true to me. Truth and comedy. And then the sneaking out of the bedroom, them just finding the Mets hat. Yeah. And Samantha Maffitt's consoling her. You thinking I, that's a dead end? And then the like double twist of she's sleeping with Aykroyd, not the kid. But also the reason the hat was there was because he gave it to Gabby Hoffman and she like swoons. <laughs> it's so sweet. Yeah. What did we think about uh, how like when you're a certain age, like you just hate your parents? That's what this movie reminded me of. Yeah, of yeah just like, definitely. Like, why, he, though? Why do we all do that? It's a thing. It's a thing you have it's to, to go through is the sort of like, wait, 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 wait. They're actually like, they, these guys are idiots. Like that, just that sort of dawning realization. Yeah, I think it's that exact thing. 
you hit an age where you start getting cynical and realizing that the world sucks. And then part and parcel with that is, oh, my parents suck. Look at all these fucked up things they did. And then you get a little older and you're like, oh, no one knows what they're doing. Like you loop <laughs> all the way back around to like sympathy for your parents where you're like, I guess they relatively did all right. Well, let's, um, just, let's just wrap up the movie very quickly. Okay. They go to the father. They have this sort of brush off. They get in the train uh, back to New York City where Julie Kavner is waiting for them at the train station. Um, there's the, the heartbreaking scene before that where they're watching her on TV and Samantha Mathis starts doing her impression of a Julie Kavner <gasps> routine. That scene for me, and I don't know, because I'm a daughter, I'm the only daughter here on this show right mm -hmm. now, that killed me. Like the idea of, it was so raw. I yeah. can't explain it. That was one of the moments, because I'm very close to my mom, but we mm -hmm. have like a contentious relationship, even though we talk almost every day, we do fight a lot. And seeing that, I don't know, for some reason really struck a chord. Because it was just like seeing how angry, and I actually am on the side of Samantha Mathis in the movie. I think she has a real right to be angry. Yeah. Watching her process her her abandonment and her anger with her mom for me was almost too close. I was like, shit, this is like real. And the, was, sh the shift from everyone else in the room laughing at her doing the impression yes. to the impression goes on too long and it gets too angry. No one's laughing yeah. anymore. Then to Julie Kavner has walked in and is listening. And she doesn't know. And she's still going on. And then they're a big fight that Julie Kavner essentially saying, like, this is my coming of age movie. I never got to have a coming of age movie. You yeah. need to let me do this. And then the movie wraps up very quickly. Like, very quick. Kavner yeah. has the sort of like uh, come to Jesus moment with Aykroyd while they're visiting the dad. When they get off the train, she's not angry at them. And then Mathis says that very sweet thing about like, and it was the one time she never gave me a life lesson when there probably was one to give. And then the movie ends with them like pitching right. the mom I, on a sitcom where she could yeah. work normal hours and it but would I be like based that on it their ends life. with it being like, yeah, no one's going to change here. Like everyone's going to this, this is the situation. We just got to live with it. Right. And 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 yeah. also Julie Kavner being like, it's very weird getting very successful very suddenly. And like, she all also those has that line like, where she's uh, like, yeah. I was miserable when you were happy. And now that I'm happy, you're miserable. Like that, that's right. a that's a great summary summary of it all. And as a Fisher says, like, every child only wants their mother to be happy. And she's like, no, a child would rather their mother was suicidal but home with them than in <laughs> Hawaii and happy. Yeah. Right, because that's what kids, that's what parents, yeah, that's yeah. the role we see them as, especially when you're Gabby Hoffman's age. Yeah, totally um, good fucking movie. Ends on a freeze frame as they laugh and then the totally insane Carly Simon song flings again. And, and gives us a the end. And this is 1990. Yes. Like, this is not, like, like, I don't know. That is going out of style, but no, yeah. I miss the those end, days. I when do I, too. When I fired this movie up and I saw that it was 90 minutes, that was the first time I cried from happiness. I was like, <laughs> yes. thank right. fucking God. A perfect, yeah. uh, a perfect length and a classic sitcom episode ending. It's gonna gonna be good for this miniseries in general. I feel like Nora never broke two hours, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, so this movie was a total bomb. It made like two million dollars total. Three, I think. Like, and it's so irrelevant that it's not, there's no box office data for it. I'm just looking at the weekend. It supposedly came out, but oh it was God. clearly out of the top 10. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but February 21st, 1992 Griffin. What was the number one movie? It's a comedy. It was beloved, uh, by, you know, teens. Is it Wayne's world? Um, yes. It's Wayne's world. Wow. Jeez, that's all you needed. 
You have Shit. a hard out, so I'm really putting the pressure on myself to try to guess all of these really quickly. But I had a I had a gut feeling. I remembered Wayne's World being a February release. Um, yeah, Wayne's World. Two weekends in, two weeks in, it's made thirty million bucks. It was such a uh, huge hit. My God, I know. It's not even one of those things where you're like, oh, that was a big surprise hit relative to expectations. It was just a flat out mega hit. Mega, mega. hit. And also is a perfect movie. Is a perfect Great movie. movie. As everyone's I doing all Wayne's these perfect World. movies on Twitter, that's a top to bottom perfect movie. Yeah, there's nothing in Wayne's World that doesn't work. All right. No. Number two is a, a, a famous bomb. Um, uh, action star doing comedy. Uh, Stop or my mom will shoot. Holy That's shit. Right. That's right. Whoa. Wow. I, that I'm movie's you, not a bomb. Michelle, I work well under pressure, and I got to <laughs> get David out in the next three minutes. <laughs> Wait, Ben, is that a Ben's choice? Yeah, yeah might be I love Ben's that choice. movie. Oh, it's shit. Great, come on, Odd Couple. Maybe we should do Stop Classic. or My Mom Will Shoot. I mean, yeah. all right. Uh, number might, three. Might number three. Again, this is just, I guess this would just go straight to Hulu now. It's like an adaptation of a best selling Oprah's book club type, type novel that was like a okay. pretty big hit. Beloved? No. No, I'm just saying things. I'm bad at this, by the way. No, I mean, you're not, not bad at this. It's not Bridges of Madison County. Is it? No, like it's uh, Soul it's Food like or that. Waiting to Exhale? Yeah, you know, down in the going. Delta. No, Prince of Tides. No, these are all fine guesses. Can we better um, hint? Hope Springs. It's, no, a, it's about female friendship. Boys in on the side. No, good movie. Though. How to make an American quilt. No, great movie though. Oh my god. Fuck! I feel like we're so close to this. Whatever. Um, it it's not it fried stars- green tomatoes. Yes. Okay. Wow. Thank wow. Two Oscar winners. Yeah. Come on. That's a good movie, they, but it would go straight to Hulu if it were made today. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like studios would be like, what? Yes. It's about ladies and oh, yes. get out of here. That thing's going, yes. yeah, that thing's going to voodoo. Yes, unfortunately. Um, it it would be a cr- it would be a crackle original if it were made today. <laughs> Unfairly. Um, unfairly. Number four is a movie that we might cover on this podcast one day because it's probably one of the least well known movies by this action director. Is it Cameron? No, we've done Cameron already. Is it it's not Bay? Is it McTiernan? Yep. Wow. Holy shit. Is it uh what's it called? Michelle, we're like the old couple that plays charades or whatever. We're disgusting. I I don't I'm not even playing anymore. I'm like it's it's not nomads, Griffin. It's the other one. It's the other lesser known one that I'm fucking forgetting. Can you, I, just because I want to get you out in time. Sean Connery the is the star. Oh, it's a, a, it's not Rising Sun. No, although that is a Sean Connery movie. Lorraine Bracco. Sean and jag- Lorraine. Jagged Edge? What's this movie no, called? No, it's called know, Medicine Man. Oh, Jesus oh. Christ, right. Uh, which I can't, I've never seen, but can't wait to watch. Number five. Okay. Huge hit. Uh, sort of a... Um, I don't know, like a trashy word of mouth smash hit. This was a Disney movie, which is insane to think about. Uh, and it's a holdover from the previous year, I'm guessing. Uh, no, I think it came out in January. It's like a thriller. Um, word of mouth smash hit. Keep going. It's uh, like an it could happen to you. Hand the the X from hell. There you go. There what was it? Go. The hand, hand that rocks, rocks the, cradle. the cradle. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Rebecca Dormornay, another yep. Seinfeld reference. Annabelle uh, Shara and Rebecca De Mornay. Uh, um, so that's the Barclays game. I am going to peace out, but you guys should keep talking. 
Okay. Well, I I don't have all day either. I have to go put a new T-shirt no, on. No, we're gonna we're gonna wrap the shirt show up. We all have shirts to change into. Uh, Michelle, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show. Michelle Collins, so still happening five days a week. Every morning, uh, seven to ten a.m. on Sirius one hundred nine. Follow me on Instagram, also at Mish Call. If you've made it this far, you can see what I look like with makeup on. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to be show you uh, the best. guesting soon, Thanks, and guys. by my demand often because I need things to do with my life. <laughs> uh, you're the best and our listeners are the best and thank you all for listening and please remember to rate, review, subscribe thanks to Andrew Gudo for co-producing this show uh, Rachel Jacobs for editing help Lay Montgomery for our theme song Joe Bone and Pat Reynolds for our artwork go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit and go to uh, patreon.com backslash blank check for blank check special features where we'll be talking about the Mission Impossible movies I think by this oh. point um and as always if i can please read the lyrics of carly simon's uh you are the love of my life that play over the end credits of this movie quickly griffin jesus quickly. here we go oh, ready God. you can you can end the call i'm gonna read them for the audience david right, you can drive right. me crazy bye you can drive me crazy you can drive me anywhere here are the keys just do as you please it may not always be easy but you are the love of my life what a fucking demented song